Well, good morning. If you uh, haven't already, please turn to Matthew 17. We're going to continue our look at the book of Matthew. Um, Today, we're going to look at what's called the Transfiguration. So as we start, uh, just was thinking about what this, this Transfiguration, what it was like in comparison to things out in the world, and something that came to my mind was something we see in movies on a regular basis. It's called juxtaposition. Uh, If we were teachers, we would talk about contrasts, but in movies it's called juxtaposition. This is where they take a character and they show one side of the character, and then they show an exact opposite side so as to understand the character fully. An example, you've got a mafia boss, right? And he's at a church going through all the religious stuff that he has to do. His child is being baptized, and he is doing communion and everything that that involves. And then the camera cuts to his henchmen with machine guns shooting up a delicatessen, killing people in cold blood. And that's a juxtaposition. Very strange one. Another example of this would be a king who says, I'm going to send my troops into war. Yes, it's a futile battle, but I don't care. They're going to fight because I'm the king and I am the law. And so those soldiers begin marching, and the camera cuts back to the king, and the king is sitting at a big dinner table, and he's eating, and as he bites into that tomato and the juices flow, it cuts to arrows piercing his soldiers and the blood flowing. That's called juxtaposition. Good screenwriters do that. Good teachers use juxtaposition. They use contrast to show the fuller picture. So today, as we look at Matthew, today's passage is today on this of all days, on Resurrection Sunday, is going to give us a fuller picture of Jesus than we had when we came in. So let's look at where we've been. Jesus has already said he's going to die. Chapter 16, verses 21 through 23. He says, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to be put to death. Here in chapter 17, in 17, 22, and 23, he says it again. Later in chapter 20, he says it. But what we're coming right out of is Jesus saying, I'm on my way to Jerusalem. The religious people are going to kill me. Oh, and by the way, if you want to follow me, you need to take up your cross and deny yourself. So his followers are told they need to die to self. The followers are told he's going to die. And all of this is kind of swirling about. So today, being Easter, Resurrection Sunday, we are remembering the cross. We're remembering what happened on that Friday that we call good. We think of Jesus, and and a lot of times the way we think of Jesus is, is either one of two places, and one of those places is the cross. And we think about him as bruised and battered and broken, and one of the translations says destroyed. Jesus was destroyed. If we don't think of the cross, sometimes we think of his coming as a baby, and we think of all the pageantry around that, and we think about Jesus the little one, or Jesus the dying one, and occasionally we might fold in there Jesus the teacher or Jesus the healer, but really it's those two, his birth and death, are kind of the the points where we think of Jesus the most. And so today what I want to do is I want us to move past the cross to Resurrection Sunday and look forward to the Jesus we all get to see sometime in the future. Because that's ultimately what we're promised. The Jesus that we're all going to see one day 
is not the Jesus of the cross. It's not the Jesus of the manger. It's not the Jesus of the Beatitudes on the Sermon on the Mount or walking on the water. It's the Jesus of the transfiguration. But oh my goodness, so much more. So today, this juxtaposition is going to help us understand Jesus even more. So this transfiguration, transfiguration is just a word. It just means to change from one to the other. Transformed or revealed is another way to say that. So this contrast today that we're going to make is between the Jesus on the cross and the Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. So our our sermon really in a nutshell is this. On the hill of Golgotha, the hill of the skull, Jesus is publicly humiliated. Even the most graphic description of the crucifixion, whether you've seen it in a movie or you've heard someone discuss it, it was worse. Jesus was stripped of his clothes. He was put on a cross, nails holding him there. His beard plucked out. Scorn and shame and ridicule on him. He's on that cross flanked by two criminals. Two common criminals. And to top it all off, all of our sins were laid on him. All is darkness at the cross. Today, we get to go on to a mountain, the Transfiguration Mountain. This is a private gathering. There's three disciples in Jesus. We see an exalted Jesus. We see a Jesus that is radiant, glistening. They run out of adjectives of how to describe how white the light is that's emanating from him. He's flanked by two religious giants, and all is bright. So this is our contrast, and we need to see these so we can see the whole picture. So let's set the stage. Look at verse 1. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, his brother. And led them up a high mountain by themselves. So six days. Why is six days important? Well, six days in the Bible always represents the preparation for a holy event. Right? When we think of the Jews and we think of the Sabbath, many of us are like, oh yeah, they just wanted a a hardcore day off. Well, actually, that's not what they did. You see, the way the Jews approached the Sabbath was they worked six days as hard as they could to prepare themselves to worship God with no distractions on Sunday. That's what they were doing. And so this six days is a one way of of Jesus saying, I'm getting you prepared for what comes next. And that is to see Jesus in a new way. Now, why these three guys? Why Peter, James, and John? Well, because they matter. These were the first three of the first four apostles that were called by Jesus. They are the ones that he takes with him to all of the places As a matter of fact, Paul says that these men were pillars. Look at Galatians 2. When James and Cephas, that's Peter's other name, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that had been given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me. He says, they're pillars of the church. They're not perfect. We see that. They mess up. But pillars nonetheless. These are the three that Jesus takes with him off into the garden to watch and pray while Jesus is crying out to God. These were probably Jesus' best friends. You ever think about Jesus having best friends along with his other friends? But I think there's even more to that. In Scripture, it says that you cannot have testimony to something being true unless two or three witnesses attest to it. 
This is how the, the Israel's courts would go. You couldn't just have one person say, hey, I think he st- I saw him steal this. They had to have two people. And Jesus goes, well, we're going to do even better. We're going to have three. So these three are testifying to what they saw. And then last, why a high mountain? Well, Matthew always points out that very important things happen on the top of mountains. There's a high mountain, Mount Moriah, Mount Sinai, Mount Jerusalem, which is Mount Zion. All of these mountains matter. Because see, here's the thing, a mountaintop experience is really hard to forget. Each of us have something like that. We have these experiences that we point to and we go, oh yeah, remember that? Some of you ladies just had that a few weeks ago, didn't you? A mountaintop experience is hard to forget. Matter of fact, Peter and John, they never forget this. Let's look at an example here. John, he wrote a whole gospel on Jesus. And look at how he starts it in John 1. In him, Jesus, was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was come into the world. When you read the Gospel of John in light of this experience, you see all over the place, John never gets over this transfiguration. Peter, another one. Look at 2 Peter 16, 1.16. He says, For we do not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of the Lord Jesus. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when we re- he received honor and glory from the Father... The voice was born to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice born from heaven for we were with him on that holy mountain. See, Peter's going, listen, yeah, you know, I saw Jesus crucified. I saw Jesus resurrected. But the first place he goes when he's saying this is why this is true is I heard God say that it was true. I heard God's voice on the mountain. Now, why is this this mountain that we're talking about today so memorable? Well, if you remember the song, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. I'm not going to sing it to you. Don't worry. It says, veiled in flesh the Godhead three, right? Veiled in flesh. This is a perfect line for this passage because what Jesus is doing is he's pulling back, back the veil to show the divine majesty. So good teaching, good storytelling, good studying always looks for contrasts. And juxtapositions. In fact, there's lots in the Bible. Light, dark, good, bad, sin, righteousness. And here we see the most important contrast between the Jesus that most of us have in our minds and the Jesus that is coming soon. So let's get into it. The first contrast we see is in verse 2. On the hill of Golgotha, Jesus was crucified in shame. Matthew 27, 33. On the mountain... He was revealed in glory. So look at verse 2. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun. Transfigured, transformed, it's the Greek word metamorphoso, which is to transform or change in form. But this is more, has the nuances of a revealing, an unveiling, an uncovering. This is Jesus showing who he truly is. Luke recounts the same story in Luke chapter 2. He says, And as he was praying, Jesus was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. Dazzling white. Now, we see this throughout the Bible. Anytime there's any interaction with angels or with God or a pre-incarnate Jesus, we see this blinding light being talked about. Here's two examples. 
Ezekiel 1. He says, I saw the appearance of, the, of a bow, bow, bow in the clouds on the day of rain, so was appearance of the brightness all around. He was so bright that it was just glowing beyond belief. In Daniel, as I looked, thrones were placed. The Ancient of Days, that's Jesus, took his seat. His clothing was white as snow. The hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. It doesn't sound like the Jesus we see on the cross. Acts chapter 9, the Apostle Paul gets to see Jesus in all of his glory post-resurrection from heaven, and look at what happens. Remember, Saul is, is persecuting the Christians and rounding them up. Verse 3, now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around. And where'd that light come from? Well, it came from the one who's talking. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, who you are persecuting. Once more, John in Revelation, verse four, chapter 1, verse 14. John gets to see Jesus as well, post-resurrection, post-ascension. He comes and stands before him, and this is how he describes him. The hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. His voice was like the roar of many waters. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. See, the way Jesus looked before he became a man and the way he looked after he became a man and went up to heaven and is interceding at the right hand of God for us is not a man bloodied and bruised on the cross. He doesn't stay there. And today, this transfiguration is a preview of coming attractions. But unlike many previews that we see in movie theaters, where the preview is better than the actual coming attraction, this preview doesn't even scratch the surface of how amazing Jesus is going to be when he comes back. The first thing they notice in verse 2 is that his face changed. His face shone like the sun. The brightest thing we can imagine is the sun. That's the best comparison they can make. And they don't even come as close as they would like because you see all the words they throw around it. You know, the blazing and, and dazzling and shining at full strength. They're trying to get us to see. You know, the sun is so powerful that even when there's a, an eclipse, remember when we had that little partial eclipse last year, a couple years ago, and it was like all these announcements, don't actually look at it. Don't look at it. Well, isn't the moon covering it up? doesn't matter. Because even when the moon covers it up, the, the light that comes off of it is so blinding, you can blind and burn your eyes out. This is what they're comparing Jesus to. Moses, who wrote the first five books of the Old Testament, who led the, 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 the Israelites out of Egypt, at one point he asked God, he says, God, can I see your glory? God goes, no, it's too much for you, but I'll show you a little bit. It says when Moses came down from the mountain, he radiated so much light, reflecting the light that God had poured into him, that people were like, Moses, cover up your face, it's too much. Now Moses didn't get hideously ugly face looking at that point, right? His face didn't all of a sudden morph into something gross. It was radiating this amazing light, and they're saying, you're as bright as the sun, we can't look at you, stop, cover it up. And so Moses walked around with a veil on his face. Jesus is different than that, though. Moses is reflecting. Jesus is emanating. 
Moses is reflecting only what God poured into him. Jesus is the source of the light. It's coming from him, from inside of him, not from a reflection. Hebrews brings this out. Hebrews 1.3, he is the radiance of the glory of God. The exact imprint of his nature upholds the universe by his power. The New King James Version says he is the brightness of his glory. I love that. He is so bright that you can't even look at him. So that's the first contrast. Our second contrast is on the hill where he was crucified. The Roman soldiers stripped him of his clothes. Now remember, they put the clothes on him. They put a purple robe on him. And that purple robe they then took off and mocking him, they, they, they threw lots for it to see who could have it. On the mountain of transfiguration, Christ's clothes are majestically shining, as white as light. I love that. So we see it in the second part of verse 2. His clothes became white as light. Mark 9, 3, it said, His clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. Do you guys see? They're trying to find words to describe how bright white light is emanating from Jesus. Mark's like, it's like this, and it's like this, and it's like that, and even that's not good enough. If you want to really know who Jesus is, look at his clothes here. They can't help but turn white. He is so radiant that the light pours through into the clothes he had just been wearing, and they became white. Wow, is that not epic? So let me, let me do a little experiment here for a second. Who in here thinks they know what color a lemon is? Raise your hand if you think, don't worry, I won't call on you. I see like two of you. You all know what color a lemon is, right? Okay. How many of you would say a lemon is yellow? Raise your hand. All right, good. What color is a lemon when the lights are off? Is it yellow? It's black, right? Here's the thing. Objects in our world don't actually possess color. All right, science, pro, science thing here for a second, okay? Primary characteristics of all items that you are seeing around you that are color, color is not a primary characteristic. It's a secondary characteristic. What do you mean, Pastor John? Well, here's how it works. The only way we see color is when there is white light involved. The light that is white has all the colors in it, and it hits objects in our world, in our universe, and some of the colors are absorbed, and some of the colors are refracted. So yes, a lemon reflects the color yellow, but it is not yellow. It's only yellow when the white light hits it. Colors are absorbed and colors are reflected. Same thing goes for, when we look at something, the light hits, it reflects back, our brains tell us this is what the color is, and we can sort of grasp what this white light looks like. Because we can't see all the colors that come in that white light. As a matter of fact, even our eyes are limited. We see such a small range on the actual range of colors. And these, these men are describing that this purity of light is so pure, so bright, so white, that it contains stuff they can't even get their minds wrapped around. This purity of white in his face and in his, in his clothes just radiates off of him. Pure whiteness. And I love that. There's no gray, there's no shadow, there's no darkness. He is just pure white light. And they just got a little snippet of it. But look to the end of the story. Revelation 21. 
right? Some of you will go, oh, I don't like this part because it says, in heaven there's no need for a sun. And you're like, but I like the sun. We see it so rarely here. <laughs> Amen? Have you guys looked on, okay, sorry. Have you guys looked on your phones lately at the weather? Like two weeks out, it says it's going to be sunny and it keeps staying two weeks out? I mean, that's from the devil right there, isn't it, right? Okay, sorry, that's not part of the sermon, but... So, Revelation 21, it says, there is no need for the sun anymore. It doesn't say it's gone, but it says we don't need it. Why? Because the brightness of the glory of Jesus fills the earth. The brightness of the glory of Jesus is so bright that not only does it make his clothes turn white, but the entire earth is going to be filled with his brightness. We're going to see colors we've never even imagined in the new heaven and the new earth. So that's our second contrast. The third one, on the hill of Golgotha, Jesus hangs between two criminals on this mountain, this high mountain, Moses and Elijah gloriously meet with Jesus. Verse three, and behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Now, who are these two? Well, Moses and Elijah, Moses represents the law, Elijah represents the prophets. Okay, what does that mean? Well, what it means is these are two very important people. I would say the two most important people that have ever lived prior to Jesus. You're like, well, wait a second. What about Alexander the Great or some of those Greek philosophers? Yeah, there are a lot of history books that will tell you those people are very, very important. But if Jesus existed, Jesus lived and died and rose again, then the people that were talking about him and pointing us to him were the most important. And these two are the top of the list. And they are right here coming to meet with Jesus. These are giants of the faith. These are a big deal, both of them. So what are they talking about? Well, Matthew doesn't tell us. Luke says that they were talking about his departure, about what he was going to do in Jerusalem. And I think that's probably what they were talking about, but Matthew's not making a point of it. So what is this all about? Well, again, Matthew doesn't really tell us. We can probably get into all sorts of speculation, but I want, I want to point out something that we see here. See, our God is a sweet God. And you're like, well, that's not a word I normally use with God. But he's very sweet. Because remember, Moses asked one thing of God. And it was from Exodus 33. Moses said, please, God, show me your glory. In verse 20, he says, you cannot see my face. No man can see me and live. But behold, there's a place in the rock where you shall stand. Hide yourself in the cleft of the rock and my glory will pass by and you can see my back, but my face you cannot see because if you see it, you will die. God is so sweet to Moses that he answers Moses' prayer here. He brings Moses up from the grave and he brings him up and resurrects him and stands him right there and he says, you wanted to see my face? Here it is. It's my son. Look upon his face. Yes, it's 1,600 years after you asked it, but my God loves that man, that Moses, so much that he says, you wanted to see my face on earth? Here it is. It's what you long to see. Here it is. I love that Moses got to see that. The fourth contrast we see. On the hill, Peter and the apostles, they're hiding. They ran away. Nowhere to be found. On the mountain, Peter's thrilled and says, Lord, it's good that we are here. What a contrast. Verse 4, Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good that we are here. If you wish, I'll make three tents here. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. 
Now, this is the first time Peter has said anything that's recorded since the get-behind-me-Satan bit a few weeks ago. Is Peter trying extra hard, or is he just doing his thinking, uh, speaking without thinking? I don't know. What is he saying? What he's saying is he's saying, I've lived an entire life. I've done all these things. This is the best moment of my life so far. This is the best thing I've ever seen. I don't want it to stop. Let's make tents and stay here forever. We need not be too hard on Peter. A teenage boy who declares that he loves his girlfriend may actually mean that I get weird feelings when you're around, girl. And, and in fact, he does feel something, so he is not wrong. He's just immature and hasn't really understood what real love is yet. But that's not to discount that he's feeling something. Same thing with Peter. Peter's immature. We talked about this a few weeks ago, how Peter is immature, but he doesn't stay there. He doesn't stay with that puppy love. He doesn't stay with the, oh, Jesus, I'm going to mess everything up and stick my foot in my mouth all the time. Instead, he grows into a pillar of the church. Peter rightly wants this to never end. It's just not time yet. Because the cross has to happen so that it will never end. Our fifth contrast. On the hill, darkness covers the whole land. You remember, Jesus breathes his last, and for three hours it's dark. The whole place goes dark. On the mountain, a bright cloud overshadows those who are present. Verse 5. He was still speaking. Peter was still speaking, and God cuts him off. Bright cloud overshadows them. Now, what does that mean, a bright cloud overshadows them? I mean, we're here in Oregon... We know all about clouds. This was not an Oregon dark rain cloud, okay? This was the Shekinah glory from the Old Testament, which is really hard to get our minds wrapped around, but basically it's a ball of brightness that's so bright it looks like a cloud, like one of those lens flashes that J.J. Abrams uses in the movies. Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about, but that's all right. It's a bright flash. It's like a light bulb has been shined on you, and all you can see is that bright light there. That's what envelops this mountain. It so cuts off any sight that it's just brightness taking over. This was a sign of God's presence, and even the disciples, before the voice said anything, they knew that God was there. We see this cloud throughout the Old Testament. We see it all the way through. The sixth sixth contrast. On the hill, Jesus says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Here on this mountain, God says, This is my Son, in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. So verse 5, voice from the cloud. This is my Son. Listen to him. He's, He's saying two things. He says, I love my Son. This is my beloved Son. And I take pleasure in him. I am well pleased. And then he adds that phrase, listen to him. And in the Greek, it's an emphatic, which means listen to him only. He's saying he is the only source of truth. Go to him. What he says matters. There's two times in the Bible, in the the Gospels, where God speaks from heaven. And both times he says, Jesus, listen to him. Follow him. Because this is the most important thing. His priceless son that he is deeply pleased with. This is the one we need to go to. Charles Spurgeon writes, God's voice conveyed to the ear a greater glory than the luster of light could communicate through the eye. The audible part of the transfiguration was so wonderful 
In fact, it made it even more so as we see in the next verse. What he's saying is, yeah, the light was amazing, and yeah, all of this glowing Jesus was epic, but as soon as they hear God's voice, what do they do? They fall on their faces. The voice is the point here. The last contrast. On the hill, the soldiers mock him. Matthew 27, 31. The people reviled him, Matthew 27, 41, saying, he saved others. Why can't he save himself? On this mountain, the disciples worshiped. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. Only when they hear God's voice do they actually fall down and begin worship. And this is the correct response. When God's presence is felt, it's fear, it's awe, it's reverence, it's worship. This is actually the response throughout the Bible. Usually it's angels. Angels show up and people bow down and angels are like, no, 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 stop that. That's bad. Don't do that. Don't worship me. Worship God. When Jesus shows up, they bow down and worship and he says, this is the way. This is the way, how it should be. See, all of us will one day fall on our faces before Jesus. The Bible says there are two kinds of fear when it comes to God. One is terrified and the other is awe and respect. All of us will bow when Jesus returns or when we die and stand before him. The group that will feel the terrified fear are those who are still in their sins. They're the ones that Jesus' death has not taken away their sins from them. And this terror will be when you stand before the Lord and you realize you've denied his love, his justice, his existence, and ultimately his sacrifice, and you realize I have mocked and I have opposed this God who exists, and I am terrified about what happens next. On the other side, you have the respectful fear, and this is awe and respect and gratitude and love, and honestly, it's fear because he is bigger, stronger, more majestic than we could imagine. But praise be to God that we have a happy fear of the Lord because of what Jesus did on our behalf. He's our God. He is the one that is the most powerful in existence, but he loves us. And I want to touch on one other thing. John, the apostle, he lived the longest of all the disciples. He was also probably the youngest. So he had the longest life of worshiping and adoring and knowing Jesus. He walked with Jesus between the ages of 18 and 21, right? He did all these travels. He stood up for Jesus and nearly died, but didn't. All of that. He knew Jesus really, really well. But this man, who's the beloved disciple who knew Jesus so well, when he sees Jesus in his glory, it's not like, hey, what's up, Jesus? How's it going? It's, oh my God, no. And he lays down on the ground. Look at Revelation 1.17. When I saw him, Jesus, I fell at his feet, though dead. How, I mean, there's nobody on earth in this room or anybody here on earth who knew Jesus as well as John did. And yet when Jesus appears in his glory, John loses it. He falls to his face as though he were dead. What does this mean? It means this. Those of you in here, you saints that know the Lord, whether you've got just a little bit of him so far or you've got a lot, Jesus is infinitely better than the best you can imagine of him. He only gets better. 
in glory, in love, in tenderness, in all of the positive adjectives in every single English book in the world applied to Jesus, and he's better than that. See, we get these little snippets, right? 1 Corinthians says we see in a mirror dimly, but we will see face to face. That's the Jesus we get to see. And if you know him and he has died for you, then it's joy that comes out of that fear of being in his presence, not the terrified, oh my gosh, what happens next? So we've seen the contrast. Now we need to see what that means for us. The first thing we see is we see that there is a touch that heals. Look at verse 7. Jesus came and touched them, saying, rise and have no fear. Literally, fear not. Common refrain throughout the Bible. Matthew points out that every time Jesus touched somebody, they were healed. And right here, Jesus heals these three of their fear of an awe-inspiring God. Because what's the deal? Peter, James, and John are still in their sins. Because Jesus hasn't died yet. They're still in their sins. And so their awe and their fear of Jesus is based out of, I deserve punishment for my sins. Jesus comes along and puts his hands on them and says, don't worry. I'm going to take care of this. I got you. I'm healing you. Remember the story about John just a second ago where John fell on his face as though dead. I didn't read the rest of the verse. This is what it said. When I saw him, I fell on my feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me and said, fear not. The experience of the the transfiguration is tender. It's intense, but it's tender. His deity shines through. Father's voice thunders from heaven, but Jesus calmly puts his hands on him and says, it's okay. Don't be afraid. I got this. The disciples were afraid, and appropriately so, because of the grandeur and the transcendence of the moment. Yet it takes one touch from Jesus, and all is made right. Jesus is the transcendent God. Today, he moves towards each and every one of us. He reaches out, and you are here now. He is reaching out to touch you and comfort you and heal you right here and right now. But it involves you trusting him with that touch. Which takes us to verse 8, which tells us there's only one. Jesus alone is the one who can heal. Look at verse 8. When they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus. The two giants are gone. And the picture here is, yeah, Moses and Elijah are very important because they pointed to Jesus, but they don't save. I save. Jesus saves. Jesus is a healer. Yeah, he's a teacher. Yes, he's a friend. Yes, he's a miracle worker. Yes. But that all pales in comparison to the fact that he is the God of the universe. And when we understand that, there's nothing more important than worshiping him. Worship means to value and treasure. Not say, hey, you're one of the many things in my life. You have a seat at the table. No, you let him have the whole thing. The whole thing is his. It's the only logical and sane response. If this morning he is risen indeed, there is no other response that actually makes sense. It's sheer stupidity not to worship Jesus if the grave is empty. We don't make ourselves good so that Jesus will love us. We'll never hit that. We don't come to church to feel bad for a day or two and then go back to sinning. 
No, the point of this is that we need to worship Jesus and see him rightly. See, there's one command in this passage, and it is the listen to him. Listening to him is important. It gets drowned out by our world. One day a week for an hour or two, and then the rest of the week, the world's drowning us out with the garbage that it throws at us. This is why we gather. It's not to punch our ticket to heaven and check we got off. We gather together because we need the constant reminder of what Jesus looks like and who he is and how we need more of him. And finally, the last piece of the puzzle, the resurrection. Verse 9, and they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. See, at this point, this makes no sense. This makes no sense to them. What, what do you mean? I just, you, you look really bright, it was really sun, shiny, and then we come down the hill. Well, what does this mean, Jesus? Jesus says, you'll get it, but not until I've died and risen from the grave. Jesus wants his disciples to understand. The Apostle Paul laid it out clearly for us in Colossians. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. There's the transfiguration. And in verse 20, through him reconcile all things, whether on heaven and earth, making peace by the blood of his cross, the crucifixion. See, if we don't have the crucifixion and the resurrection, all we got is, hey, this God came down and visited us, but left us in our muck and in our mess, and uh, good luck with that, kids. But that's not what he did. Jesus came as God to heal. That was his purpose. Yes, he's an example. Yes, he worked miracles. Yes, he wants you to have all sorts of different things. But his purpose in coming was to save you from your sins. This Jesus that we've seen on the cross will one day be the one we see when we die. Some of you in this room, you will close your your eyes on this world and open your eyes to see Jesus. Some of you, that will be terrifying. Others of you, it will be amazing. Some of us will be granted the opportunity to not die. Not that it's going to be any easier because Jesus is still showing up. This time he'll be on a white horse. He'll be surrounded by angels and it is going to be as bright as all get out. So the question is, will you bow and worship now or will you bow in terror and fear later? Today, Jesus is reaching out his hand And he's saying, all you need is my touch. My touch heals. My touch is comforting. Fear not. If you place your trust in him, he says, I will pay the debt for your sin. My return or your coming to see me will become not something to be terrified of, but a time of joy and worship and happiness. It really is as simple as that. Will you trust in this Jesus? Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for what this day represents in our relationship to you. Thank you that your son's death was enough. And you showed us that by the resurrection. Help us to not leave here today without allowing you to heal us. Allowing you to make peace with us and you through your son's death blood on the cross and his resurrection. Lord, thank you for this opportunity to study this passage and to to see it and hear it. Thank you, Lord. In your name, amen.